Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. So my dad and my uncle Rufus are really funny when they get together. And at a recent family gathering, they tasked themselves with an important linguistic goal. Now there are names for multitudes of animals, and I'm sure you're familiar with the popular ones. There's a gaggle of geese, a pride of lions, etc. My dad and uncle took up the important task of naming groups of professions. Let's see what they come up with for some common jobs, as well as a few wine industry jobs. Okay, I'm Aaronstad, and riding to work every day, I had my mind wandered, so I was thinking about what we call collective animals, such as what uh, multiple giraffes. They're called towers. And uh, multiple peacocks are called ostentation of peacocks. And then we have leap of leopards, and we have streak of tigers. So I was thinking, why can't we categorize humans according to their, you know, occupations? So I said, let's call a dermatologist rash of dermatologists. So I'm trying to get everybody to have their input on uh, what we call certain occupations. Yeah, I thought maybe we could have, you know, lawyers, you know, we could have a crook of lawyers. We could have a swine of lawyers. A swine of lawyers. A slime of lawyers. How about a, a lop of woodsmen? That would be uh, pretty good. A, a crook of politicians. How about a crock of politicians? Politicians, a crock of politicians, or uh, we could have a spoon of chefs, uh, a twill of pastry chefs, a, a bouquet of florists, car salesmen. We got to come up with one for that. How about a crook of, of car salesmen? You know, how about farmers? We could have a sprout of farmers. You know, they, we, we could have always you know, uh, uh, sea captains. We could have a trawl of sea captains. See? We can have all of these things. So, you know, I'm, I think everybody should think of these things and and, and, so, uh, and send them in. And so I, uh, I came to my daughter, who is a sommelier, and I said, what are we going to call a collective bunch of sommeliers? And we're thinking about that. A vat of sommeliers. Maybe a cask of sommeliers. 
We have to think about this. Because sommeliers are very special, and and we have to come up with a really good collective term for sommeliers. I agree wholeheartedly. <laughs> wholeheartedly. Oh. What about winemakers? You got anything for winemakers? What about a body of winemakers? They're always a talking body. about a body. A body, yeah. They're always body. talking about bouquet, body. Yeah. You know, so a body of, I don't know. A body of winemakers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's <a> good <laughs> Well, I guess when the wine make, when you when there's only a few winemakers, it's a light bodied, it's a light body of winemakers. That but when there's good. maybe ten or twenty, then it's a medium body of winemakers. Okay, so but we're still back to sommelier. So we're thinking, put on our thinking caps, and come up with a good one. Well, Dad and Uncle Rufus, thank you so much for your input. So as you can see, everybody. This is of the utmost linguistic importance. And we shouldn't really feel satisfied with our industry until we have the words to speak about our professions. Language Language is a cultural cultural construct, construct. and we need your help to find a word for a group of sommeliers. My dad has started the conversation. If you have any ideas of your own, leave them in the comments section on iTunes or tweet to us at drinktothatpod. Hmm, Let's see what else we can come up with. Palette of sommeliers, a scrub of winemaking assistants, a geek of MWs, a twist of Riddlers, a pin of MSs, a muscle of sommelier assistants, a graft of viticulturalists, an inoculation of industrial winemakers, a push of reps, a chill of Eurokov salesmen, a tattoo of line cooks, a gobble of foodies, a shatter of Riedel glassblowers, a parker of new wine collectors, a crust of It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at OffsetPartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an s.com offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand Egan Pascalacqua on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm very well. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So you got the Sandlands project working now. I, I do. Yeah. This is uh, we're about to release the first five wines. And so. as we discussed in the last interview, worked for a long time for Turley, which you still do, still making the wine there, and you own the Kirschman Vineyard. Yes. And then you started up this other project and. Your first vintage was 2010. 2010, right. Well, actually, that's not true. We actually made wine in 2009, and I sold it in bulk. You just didn't share it with me. Right. Uh, we we a, didn't bottle it. It was a personal dig. Y- yeah, we, no, we, we didn't bottle it. It was one of those things where, you know, I, 
you've seen Sweet and Lowdown, you know, the movie where like he breaks up the guitar, like, you know, the one thing that means the most to him, like that was kind of the like love affair I had with the 2009s. Like it kind of hate, I would tell my wife, like, I'm going to drive up to the winery and take like an ax to the barrels. And she's like, if you do, I'm gone. Like <laughs> That would so, kind of freak me out, too, right, to right, be honest with you. Right, yeah. right. And it would be like it. I think know, it's good that she probably set yeah, that boundary. It'd be yeah. at like 1.30 in the morning. I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? And she's like, no, you're not. Like, <laughs> So you're right. I, I sold those wines to a friend in bulk who has a little negotiant project, and he bottled them, and he was really happy with them. So so how did you get started doing your own thing? I mean, obviously, you own the Kirschman Vineyard, but some of these are sourced from other areas, too. They are sourced. So I'm currently not making any wine from the Kirschman Vineyard. I'm still selling fruit primarily to Turley and then to Carlisle Winery and Bedrock. And uh, I sold a little bit before to Bruce Nyers and Arnott Roberts. Uh, Abe Scherner bought Pinot Gris and Zinfandel. Matthew Rourke at Forlorn Hope bought Pinot Gris. Uh, I've grafted over a good chunk of the Pinot Gris to Chenin Blanc, which I will be making. It'll be the first Kirschman Sandlands wine this this coming year, 2014. And why did you decide to do that? Uh, one, I, I wanted to make Chenin Blanc, and I think the the area I really like the structure and the aromatics of the Kirschman wines that we've made, and I, I I really believe that it will lend well to Chenin out there. So you know, it's got a it's white sand with sandstone and there's actually some chalk so some quasi limestone in the soil about four or five feet out in this white sand so so it's not because they made a bottling of pinot gris from your vineyard called fuck tegan like no no it, it was it was ftp yeah <laughs> matthew rourke bottled the three liter that said fuck tegan Pestlocker. like abe just left it to the imagination <laughs> like screw you guys yeah yeah, yeah. So. so fuck me no fuck you yeah, exactly you're not gonna have any more pinot gris right yeah so yeah, uh, will 2014 will be the first, and you know, and hopefully, eventually, I don't know when it will be, but you know, hopefully, one day I'm not in a bad way, not working for Turley anymore, and I can make Zinfandel from our property. That's kind of the dream. Oh, so, okay, because uh, you feel, you don't want to do that now because you feel like that would be like competing. With- yeah, and, and Larry kind of doesn't want anyone working for him making Zinfandel, which is you know fair enough. You know, there are only so many old Zinfandel vineyards out there, and. If I'm starting to be like, oh, by the way, you know, this vineyard, for some reason, they decided to go with me, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, yeah, no, I mean, it, it's kind of in the in the long-term plan. I think we'll probably always sell fruit. You know, it's it's 15 acres of the old vines. And, you know, I, I, I think we'll always sell a little bit of fruit. But, you know, eventually we'd want to make, you know, make some of our own. So you're making Chenin Blanc not from the Kirschman Vineyard already under Sandlands. And where are you sourcing that fruit from? So it's from a vineyard up in Amador County in the Shenandoah Valley. And it's a vineyard that was planted in 1979 and it's own rooted, so which is really neat. And it's head trained and dry farm. So a uh, really neat old Chenin Blanc vineyard. It was going into wines that they'd pick really ripe. They would acidify and then add sugar to it, you know, sweeten it and stainless steel ferment it. And the wine was... Not to my liking, but I kind of, after my trip to South Africa and working with some of the great old Shannon vineyards there, you know, you're like, oh, right, it, it's it's a warmer climate, but, you know, you don't have to pick uber ripe and there's still structure and minerality. And so I came back and I, I offered more money for the fruit than they were getting. They kind of were in between people they were selling it to and they were selling it for $400 a ton. And I said, well, I'll pay 1200 and I'll come out and do all the like handwork myself. So my wife and I drove up every other weekend and would do all the kind of pruning and suckering and light leafing and lateral removals ourselves. So because that seems like a big difference in money, it, like, it is right. And I mean, but it's like you know they've never taken the wine seriously, and it's like wow, if you farm 
the vineyard well, you know, you, you could make serious wine. So we only got a little over a ton in 2011, and then we got about three tons in 2012. So when I think of other Shannon Blanc producers in California, there's Chapelet, there's Chalone, but not so many others really come to mind. Yeah, I mean, there used to be quite a bit of Shannon in California, uh, but Chapelet and, you know, Chalone to me are kind of like the legends of, you know, and it was, again, all they did was they made Chenin Blanc from like serious, you know, vineyard sites, you know, so they weren't like growing it next to the river, you know, in the heavy soils. They were actually using very serious sites, you know, and it, the interesting thing, it was actually Philip Tongi who made both of those wines originally. So he was the first winemaker at Shalone when they first bought the property before Graf was there and made Shannon. And I don't know if the story's true. I've always wanted to ask him. But then I heard he went up to Chapelet and Don Chapelet was like, oh, yeah, we got to rip out this Shannon. And he was like, no, no, like, I actually know how to make Shannon. Like, this would be a good site for it. So he kind of single-handedly, you know, saved Shannon, you know, from these great old vineyards in California, so. And clearly made legendary wines. And so you're working with Amador County Fruit. What's Amador County like as a place? Amador County's, uh, there are two AVAs within it. There's the Shenandoah Valley, and then there's also Fiddletown. And Fiddletown's at elevation, uh, more volcanic and less granite up in Fiddletown. And then uh, Shenandoah Valley has, you know, just big volcanic chunks of boulders and granite. It's a little warmer because Fiddletown goes up to about 2,600 feet. And uh, Shenandoah Valley, kind of most of the vineyards are around fifteen to sixteen hundred feet in elevation. But it's a really it's a shorter growing season, so it's really cold in the winter. So late bud break, you know, I mean, you can definitely get spring frost in May up there. And but you know, the wines are pretty serious. So you know, Turley's making some Zinfandel up there, and and I don't think people really understand the Zinfandels because they've kind of been contrived for a long time. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, you know, people wanted to make, you know, like a wine that kind of tasted more like Sonoma or Napa that was, you know, kind of darker fruits, maybe a little more dry extract in structure, mid-palate weight, where the wines that you come from there are actually red-fruited, you know, they're translucent almost, and they're very structured from the granite. So to me, the wines are very, very serious wines, and they've been sold to a demographic who wasn't really looking for serious wines. They wanted something with a little residual sugar, maybe, you know, some artificial oak and, you know, a lot of extraction, you know, big, powerful wines. And it was a surprise to me that I actually found out that the wines actually, that's not what they want to be. They actually want to be kind of more red-fruited, spicy, and really structured. You know, I kind of view the region almost as, you know, like the Barolos of California, kind of the way they can age forever. I think you had that one wine, that the Daryl Cordy wine, you know, that I brought yeah, that out was at Darren's fantastic. birthday. And, it, you know, that was 40 years old, you know, and I mean, that's how they can age. If they're not, you know, they don't do a saunier and they don't use enzymes and they don't, you know, pick too late and add acid, you know, you can really make wines that can age pretty gracefully up there. I really associate that phrase, the, what the wines want to be with you when it comes to California wines, because I've heard you say it before, and then I've heard you taste that way, like blind taste that way, where you've said, well, you know, I can tell what this wine is because this is a wine that didn't need any contrivance to get to be how it tastes. And because it tastes this way, I can tell it's from this kind of site. Is that a way that you approach it often in your own thinking? Because it feels like not always the, the Napa speak that I grew up with, I guess, you know, where people were talking about like, we got so many points or, you know, our wines are allotted this way. 
Well, and I think I think you know now now's an interesting time in the in the wine business in California because people are trying to figure out like what do their sites actually taste like? You know, not using enzymes and you know backing off the new oak. And I mean, there are clearly great sites throughout the world who it's amazing when you take you know they actually soak up the new oak and you're like, wow, I can't even. You know, that's it's one old winemaker in Napa one night was kind of had a little too much to drink and he was telling me how, you know, what you guys have to do at Turley, you guys need to use 200% new oak. He's like, because you guys have the fruit that can handle it. And that's the test of like great sites is a site, which I kind of totally disagree with, but I also think it's a really neat conversation to have, you know, that like, oh yeah, great site. Like you can slather it with 200% new oak and it still shows itself. And again, I don't think I agree with it, but I think it's kind of a neat, neat conversation to have. Because for me, if I were to have that conversation, I would say like a great site produces aromatic intensity that I really enjoy in terms of the wine. Right. You know what and, I mean? And, and I think like kind of what he was saying was like a great site can even like still do that and be, you know, sh- express itself with all that new oak. You know, but clearly like I don't use any new oak on any of the Sandlands wines. You know, it's not, I, I don't believe in that. But I do think it's kind of like just an interesting conversation. You know, I mean, clearly, you know, there are a lot of great burgundies that are 100% new oak. And, you know, it's like there are some that you're like, really? I can't I can't tell. It almost seems like when people say, like, he can take it, like a very masculine view of how to raise a young man. It's like, well, if I slap him up the head and he's a strong-willed guy, he can, you know. Yeah, I, you know. I, I mean, I, I, I definitely see that. You know, and I think that's kind of that's kind of the American way, showcasing what people have is – you know, how much can they take? I mean, Americans love, you know, when things kind of are, we're in, we're in this time of, you know, the California wine industry where it's almost like what every American planned, you know, it's like, we're almost like we're going to be able to rise from the ashes or, you know, it's kind of like, that's what America kind of loves, you know, people kind of living high on, you know, high on the hill and then, you know, the rags to riches and back to rags again, you know, people kind of like that. So, I mean, but you do think it is a people story. Like it's people liking a thing about people, not necessarily people liking a thing about like granite or something. Like, oh, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, people just, you know, it's, we're still young and, you know, people don't know what to expect out of wine. You know, people in America still just want something to taste great. You know, they don't really spend that much time, you know, thinking about wine. You know, we've had this conversation. I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, we like to geek out about everything and, talk ad nauseum like about like how things taste and why they taste that way and you know i mean there are a lot of people i mean a lot of people even you know not in california who don't care about that so you know it's hard you know you're not gonna make i'll be honest like the amador county wines they're not for everyone you know and it's just like barolo's not for everyone so more than other grapes and you're also sourcing grapes from Contra Costa County. What are you getting from there? So from Contra Costa County, I'm getting Carignan, which is pretty amazing because out there they call it Kerrigan. Uh, and and <laughs> like I, Nancy, in like Nancy Kerrigan. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of those things you realize that like when people farm things for five generations, it's like you know what? It's Kerrigan. You know, you you really like you can't like try to correct them or you know their their grandparents like plant these vineyards in the 1880s, and you're like. Oh no, you're pronouncing it wrong. You're like, no, I'm not. I'm selling Kerrigan. If you want to buy it, here it is. And then there, they also grow Mataro out there too. You know, Morved. And again, it's one of those things. You know, they 
most of the vineyards in Contra Costa were planted by Portuguese immigrants. Uh, they were big fishermen. The Delta there had one of the largest, if not the largest, salmon run on the West Coast that was ruined by hydraulic mining in the, the foothills. So it, it's, it's pretty interesting. Most of the wines that I work with, they're all kind of interconnected. So you have the pure granite up in the foothills, so Amador County, and then halfway down you have Lodi, and you have granite sandy soils that are deposited and Right before the bay, you have, you know, more sandy soils in Contra Costa. And it's kind of the creation of California by the plates lifting and lifting up the foothills has allowed for this to happen. And, and the fascinating thing about all three of these regions is they have a large collection of own rooted vines, which, you know, it's kind of the holy grail kind of. I mean, it, there are so many conversations you can have about wines. I mean, I, I haven't tried any, but, you know, I've heard a lot of people from Burgundy say, oh, should have tasted the wines, you know, pre-Phylloxera. They just, you know, if you never tasted them, you'll never understand what, what they tasted like. So for me, it's really fun that in California we get to work with old vines that are dry-farmed, head-trained, own-rooted vines. It's, it's a lot of fun. Mataro, that's Mouvedra? It is, yes. And what's that like to work with? It, it's fun. Uh, you know, it's kind of a funkier grape. Contra Costa it actually grows really, really well. You know, I know a lot of people who try to grow it and they have problems getting it really ripe and, you know, retaining acidity. And Contra Costa, you know, it's right there on the delta in this sand type that's called Delhi blow sand. So D-E-H-L-I blow sand. And it's, you know, 40 to 60 feet deep of pure sand, you know, quartz and granite and silica. And it just loves it. You know, you can pick grapes at, you know, 24, 25 bricks and they'll have 3.2, 3.3 pH, you know, kind of the greatest numbers you can make, you know, for red wine. And then you go up in the foothills or some other areas and people are like, oh, it hit like 22 bricks and it was already 4.0 pH. So it's like clearly not a great site for it. And, you know, it does well out there. The reality is I know there have been some other people who have made wine from out there, but that had issues with reduction. It was this classic thing where everyone, you know, made wines with reduction and, I helped Abe get some fruit out there a couple of years back from a grower who's now passed away named Rich Pato. He grew grapes for Ridge and Rosenblum. And it was funny because he, I kind of had to beg him to take grapes out of a contract for Abe. And, you know, he's like, well, tell me about this guy. He's like, you know, he's not one of those nutballs like Graham or Thackeray or Steve Edmonds, is he? I'm like, well... Yeah, he kind of is, you know, it's like, and it's weird. Like, I mean, those are the people historically who have gone out to Contra Costa to want to make Mataro. But the biggest issue out there was these reduction issues. And in reality, most of the winemakers who were going out, there were going out, you know, a couple of weeks before harvest to start tasting grapes. And with Turley, I started working out there and seeing a lot of the growers, they were still sulfuring with sulfur dust in a coffee can and like a satchel. So they like, put on like a backpack satchel and they'd like scoop out, you know, sulfur dust and just in a can and throw it on the vines, you know, and I'm pretty sure that's where this reduction was coming from because I mean, they just plaster the vines and around harvest time, you really wouldn't see that, but you know, all that, the, the sulfur dust gets stuck in between the clusters and the berries and then you get it in the fermentation tank and leads to reduction. And I'm pretty sure that <laughs> that was the issue that a lot of these winemakers were having with the fruit out there, you know, so it's just a farming issue and Contra Costa doesn't, no one out there really makes wine. They, you know, they sell fruit. So no one really had to live with their mistakes. You know, they would ship it out to 
you know, wineries or they shipped a lot to Canada for winemaking up there and, and fruit packing uh, lugs. And they never had to deal with like, oh, we've got this reductive tank. You know, they just sold grapes. You know, if that person they sold to didn't like it, they'd find another buyer the next year. So there wasn't that working relationship with like, hey, we've got a problem with the wine. Let's figure out what we can do with it. So, you know, luckily I found a grower who wasn't using coffee can dusting sulfur. So that's a good thing. And what about the Carignan? The Carignan, uh, the Carignan grows great out there as well. And the wines in Contra Costa have this real suave kind of sweet tannin. I mean, the wines are bone dry, but uh, I think there, you've, there's a similarity you find in wines grown in sand that kind of have that like suave tannin that's still strong and great acidity. You know, I find just as many kind of, you know, white fruit aromatics in the wines, you know, especially the the Carignan. You know, so, you know, peach and nectarine. I mean, the wines are dark, but then they have these kind of lifted white fruit aromatics. So. I was getting like mandarin orange and stuff. Right. No, it's 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 freaky. I mean, I think, was you talking about tasting in black glasses or? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I mean, that's a wine I've always wanted to because I'm like, I when I try to like sit down and kind of like think of tasting notes, I'm always like all these kind of white fruits. I'm like, it's a red wine and it's like really dark in color. But, you know, it's, you know, I don't pick it uber ripe. It's always picked kind of mid-23s, something around there. I mean, the, the wines are, you know, mid-13s, so for the Contra Costa wines. Are you always bottling Amador with Amador and Contra Costa with Contra Costa, or sometimes do those uh, areas blend together? With the 2010 Morvedra I made, uh, Mataro, I kind of used that name in homage of Ridge. You know, they always called theirs Mataro as well, and I'm like, you know what? It's And the growers call it Mataro. Uh, I blended those two sites together. So it was one really high elevation site in Fiddletown and the Contra Costa site. And they really, I think, paired well together. The high elevation is all high tones and lifted and a lot of savory spice. And then the Contra Costa was just kind of that dense structure, you know, kind of masculine wine. And they really blended well together. Was there a difference in harvest time? Uh, about two months. Oh my so, god! Yeah, yeah, yeah. So and and of course, like the the stuff in Contra Costa was the riper, but it was riper with more acid. And then you know the the Fiddletown stuff, you know, was picked in like November 11th at the end end of the growing season, and it was like you know 22 and a half bricks. So physically, you're not expected to be in two different counties at the same time to harvest grapes. Correct. Correct. I mean, and and with Turley, I am, you know, but physically, it's kind of hard. But with with the Mataro, it, it worked out just fine. And then you also make a Syrah. I do. So the Syrah was made from a vineyard that the Pizzoni family planted down in Santa Lucia Highland. So it's right next to their Gary's Vineyard. Which, you know, a lot of people make wine from the Gary's Vineyard. And Gary's Vineyard is planted more or less, you know, true north-south. So it has a afternoon side, which I was told by them that there was, you know, discrepancy, especially with more with their Pinot Noir, that, you know, afternoon side was getting riper than the morning side. And so with the Soberanus estate, they decided to change up row orientation to eliminate that uh, discrepancy. And I mean, the Syrah there is just stunning. It's really beautiful. They only planted a couple acres of it. And they use different clones. They used Albin clones. And the Pizzoni family, I mean, they are, you know, they're the, like the role models. My wife and I, like, we could have a set of boys. It'd be like Mark and Jeff. You know, they're just amazing guys. And Jeff makes the wine and Mark farms the vineyards. And they're both brilliant and like polite, nice guys. I mean, guys that you really love hanging out with. And Mark farms like hundreds, if not thousands of acres of vegetables. So farming grapes is kind of like, oh, yeah, no problem. 
all the things that like other farmers like, oh, I can't, I can't do that tomorrow. I'm busy. Like he would just like make it happen. You know, it's like once you farm vegetables, farming grapes is like a joke. Is that true? I think so. Yeah. You know, just because, I mean, there's a, there's a qualitative, you know, the, the aesthetic quality indicator of growing vegetables, like someone's going to have to buy it in a store has to kind of look good. So, you know, and wine grapes isn't always the same way. You know, there are a lot of people now who want, you know, but in the old days, like, you know, people would never like even be out of the harvest. Like a guy would pull up in his truck and say, here are your grapes. And they're in between 21 and 24 bricks or whatever. So, yeah, they're, they're just fantastic farmers and great people. And I think it's a really special vineyard down there. And what about the Grenache? So the Grenache is a really, really neat vineyard. It was a vineyard that I'd heard about years before, and I was told that it was ripped out. It's in Placer County, which is northeast of Sacramento by about 30 minutes. And it was a vineyard that was planted in 1930. And it used to be a larger vineyard. It's right next to the, the high school in a town called Loomis. And there's about an acre and a half left of, you know, head trained, dry farmed, own rooted Grenache. And the grandson of the owners, he kind of hacked it back in 2011, hadn't been pruned in, you know, seven or eight years. And then in 2012, I went out there and kind of checked it out with him. And, you know, I went out and picked a, a half ton. So there's a barrel of it. And then in 13, I helped him prune it and it was in beautiful shape. And then his aunt let out the goats on the property and they ate all the fruit. So it, it was a pretty depressing. You know, it looked like this fruit had been mechanically harvested, but you can't really do that on head-trained old vines. So, you know, the, the goats just kind of stripped it. You know, they were out for like a week when the, when the grandson was gone and like just took down all the fruit. It was pretty impressive. Uh, so I didn't get to make that in 2013, but it'll be back in 2014. And what's Grenache like to deal with? Well, it's interesting. I mean, I think a lot of people want to make Grenache in California. And, you know, I think I've come to realize that you kind of need old vines. Like if you don't, I actually made Grenaches from another vineyard that just never kind of qualitatively were what I was looking for. And then I made this one. I'm like, right, that's exactly it. Really great natural acidity, translucent, really kind of strong sinewy wines. I think a lot of Grenaches in California kind of, you know, you need to like make the GSM blend or do something to kind of, you know, fill in what Grenache doesn't have. But, you know, you taste great Grenaches throughout the world and, you know, you're like, wow, those those aren't manipulated like that. What What's the secret that they have? And basically, I think primarily it's vine age. It's just kind of like, right, you know, Grenache takes a long time. It's a heavy producer, you know, when it's young. And you can always kind of cut back on that and, you know, thin off a lot of fruit. But theory of the vine's out of balance. It's like it wants to set, like, eight tons the acre you should probably let it do it you know it'll finally like tone itself down and the grenache is the one you're going to charge a little bit more for when you release the wines yeah and i mean i the the wines are the the shannons are 24 the the mataro's 25 the trousseau and the syrahs are 28 and the carignan's 28 and then the grenache we decided to price at 40 and it's just because you know there's so little of it and it's a really special vineyard and and I just, I love the strength of the wine. And I, I think it'll be the red wine that actually will kind of need the most time. You know, it's like a serious wine to age. And I kind of thought maybe charging a little more would illustrate that to people. And again, we only have 24 cases of it. So it's not like we have a lot of that wine. But, you know, we, I mean, it's one of those wines, my wife and I, we'd be happy with keeping it all. So we like it that much. So I'm just kind of see how it ages over time. I found the Trousseau pretty uh, remarkably delicious drinking 
kind of like right now. <laughs> yeah, the trousseau will, you know, the trousseau we hope to release, you know, this fall. I love, I mean, if I had it my way, when I, when I started making wine, Abe Scherner, you know, good friend of mine and yours too, he he said, let me give you one piece of advice. I started making wine in 1999. I didn't release my wines until 2005. He's like, don't do that. It's a disaster. And subconsciously, I've kind of done the exact same thing. So, you know, we've been pretty busy uh, in the last couple of years. If, if I had my way, I probably would have released the 2010s within the last year, but it just hasn't been in the cards for us. So, and clearly I do love wines with bottle age. You know, I just, I think at least six months, but all of the wines we've bottled at Turley, like I kind of think, oh yeah, after a year of bottle, like they're just starting to get into their stride a little bit more. So I'd love to be able to keep that up. You know, I know a lot of people, my friends, everyone's young, you know, you're, you're doing it on a shoestring budget and you don't have just like big investor money kind of hanging out where you can, you know, oh, let's, you know, it's not like we're Terry Layton, you know, like, oh, and in 12 years, I'm going to release this Chardonnay when I think it's like tasting good. Uh, so yeah, we, we hope to re- hold on everything for about a year. And, you know, the Trousseau may be something that we release, you know, after six or nine months, but we're really happy with the way it's been performing and the vineyard's fun. And, you know, we, we love the wine. So, so where is the vineyard? It's out on, you know, what the locals out there call the true Sonoma coast. So it's the, the true. So Sonoma, coast. right, right. <laughs> so it, it's out on Bohan Dillon road, which is kind of, you know, the Rodeo drive of, you know, the Sonoma coast because it's, it's Hirsch and Marcuson and, you know, the new Peter Michael vineyard, you know, they're all out off Bohan Dillon Road. And George Bohan, who is a fifth-generation farmer out there, really amazing, neat guy. We buy Zinfandel from him that his dad planted in 1971. And he planted own-rooted Zinfandel out on the coast, you know, just a couple miles away from the ocean. And I think, I mean, people have credited, it's the first modern planting of vineyards out on that far on the Sonoma Coast. And we buy Zinfandel from him and Every year we'd be picking the Zinfandel and he had this one block of Merlot that, you know, we'd pick the Zinfandel kind of in November every year after it rained. And it's like, okay, it's time to bring it in. And the block of Merlot was like sitting there, like being rained on. And it's like, there's, you know, seven inches of rain coming the next day and it's like not picked. So I started kind of harassing him to let me graft it over to something. And I kind of told him what I wanted to graft. And, you know, he hadn't heard of like Trousseau before and harassed me calling it Inspector Clouseau grape. Uh, for a while, which is pretty classic. And then he started doing his history on it. He's like, is it gray Riesling? And I'm like, well, no, it's, it's Trousseau Noir. It's, you know, not gray Riesling. That's, you know, Trousseau Gris. And he said, well, Winkler, he had his old, like Winkler, UC Davis, like viticulture books that Winkler said not to like plant Trousseau Gris. And he's like, but he also said not to plant Zinfandel. And my dad did that. So why don't we do the Trousseau? So we grafted a little over an acre and it's pretty interesting because where the Trousseau's planted, he has Pinot Noir planted all the way up to the Trousseau. And then it's a gravel, the sandy gravel lens of uplifted seabed where he always thought it was too warm to grow Pinot Noir because the soils were really warm. And, you know, from, I haven't visited, but for everything I've read about the Jura, that's the same thing that the, the Pulsard and the Pinot Noir is planted in the clay and the marls and the chalk and that the trousseau was planted in the gravel because it could, those warmer soils would resonate the other other grapes. So he let me graft it, and we do kind of, we kind of, we have the contract on the 1.1 acres, but I let the Arnott Roberts 
uh, folks buy a little bit of it too. So they started putting it into now they make a North Coast Trousseau instead of their Lake County. And uh, it's fun working with So them. they're blending those grapes. They're blending other. it, right. And they have I wine. find the wine quite different. Like I'd be surprised if it were 100% from the same parcel. Right. No, it's it's not. So, you know, and I kind of wanted, you know, there were a lot of people actually, once everyone kind of heard that I grafted it out there, everyone started calling and saying, I want some, I want some. And there's not a lot, but I've told the Arnott Roberts guys, they get a ton every year, kind of an homage to them that they made the first, you know, California Trousseau and made one that tasted really good. So, you know, it's pretty admirable that they went out on a limb and did it. What's it like to handle in the winery? You know, it's interesting because it is a, you know, most people think that, you know, Trousseau, you know, the wines are lighter in color, but the, the skins are actually, they get pretty dark. You like know, Poufanese is actually pretty dark on release. It is, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, the, the grapes are dark. And it, the funny thing is once we grafted it out on the coast and I started going out there every week, you know, the first two years I did all the farming on it and I would drive out there every weekend when I wasn't up in Amador County and as soon as we planted it, I just started spotting it in all of our old vine vineyards. You know, there's a lot of Trousseau Noir. So in our Hain vineyard, in our Fredericks vineyard, in our Library vineyard, and the more earthquake vineyard that we used to work with. I mean, there was a lot out there and it was like, oh, right, that's what that is. And then the Fredericks vineyard and just you, you start kind of seeing it everywhere. So, I mean, it's been in the valley for quite some time. So what do you think happened to it before it got vinified into other wines? It was vinified into other wines. So it was actually, there's a famous research station up in Jackson, Amador County, actually, that was one of the university research stations. And it's where the Sauvignon Blanc from the Mondavi Eye Block came. So it's kind of this legendary research station vineyard that was planted and it actually had Trousseau up there. And they also had, I'm trying to think, one of the Cabernet clones, either four or six, came from Jackson. So it's like, oh, that's the Jackson clone. So it was kind of late 1800s. They planted like all these different varieties up in the foothills. So, and the nursery, like there's one clone of Trousseau Noir that's called Jackson. So it was planted there, which it was interesting because when people started selling it in California as a cutting, you know, to propagate, they were selling it as Bastardo. And so a lot of people are like, oh, it's not Trousseau, it's Bastardo. And it's like, actually, they were selling it to people who wanted to plant a, you know, a port vineyard, but they actually came from Jackson. And when it was at Jackson, it was called Trousseau. So for 120, 30 years, it's been called Trousseau in California. How have you found the California Trousseaus, not that there's a ton, but that have been vinified to compare to the French examples? Well, I mean, I think that it comes back to, you know, like the Trousseaus from the Jura or Jura Reds, you know, and they have that kind of structure that you get, you know, that Alpine structure. And I don't really find that as much in the California versions. Like I think the one we make for Sandlands, a lot of times it's like, wow, that's really smells and tastes like Sonoma Coast. It doesn't taste like Sonoma Coast Pinot Noir or, you know, Chardonnay, of course, or Syrah, but it tastes like Sonoma Coast Trousseau. So there is that Sonoma Coastness to it. The uh, Bohan, Bohan quality. The Bohan quality, right. And which I think, I mean, it should have, you know, it shouldn't taste. But I have also found that, you know, and like you were saying about the Puffini, like there's, like it's dark, you know, and, and the the Trousseaus that have been made in California, they they don't have that color. You know, they're actually a little lighter, more translucent in color. And how have the vintages treated you? You've done, so you sold off nine in bulk, you had 10, 11, 12, and now 13. What have they been like? So 10 was a great vintage, you know, for the varieties I worked with. So the Contra Costa vineyards, you know, came in kind of perfectly. They weren't affected by that. We had a big heat spike in 2010 that ruined a lot of Zinfandel and Pinot Noir. And that didn't affect the Carignan or it didn't affect Contra Costa, I should say. 
And then 11 is probably by far the most distinct vintage that uh, I've ever worked, be it, you know, for myself or for Turley, where, I mean, the wines just have the 11 imprint on them. You know, it's really neat, you know, spice turned up to 11, you know, higher acidities and everything. And not like ridiculously high acidities, but just all the wines just have a little more acid. And it's weird because they have kind of an extract from the crop levels were really low in 2011. So they have the extract from that, but they're also lean. So it's kind of, you have, you know, this kind of extract and really strong wines. And I, for most of the 11s, I use that term sinewy, you know, they're really like strong and connected. And, and I think that's from the really low crop levels and then a really cool vintage. 12 was just like kind of the crowd pleaser across the board, like, it was kind of like the easiest vintage ever. The only problem was like, where do you put all the fruit? And that clearly wasn't the issue for Sandlands because we didn't, you know, we don't make that yeah, much 24 wine. Twenty-four cases. Uh, yeah. But uh, and then thirteen just seems like it's great across the board. You know, thirteen is, you know, I think thirteen will go down to show that like twelve is a good vintage but not a great one. The wines from twelve will be really well received. The consumers will love them, but like they won't be the classic wines that thirteen will be. You know, and I think 11s will be really classic, but in a different sense. I mean, you're talking about someone earlier who likes, like, all the cool vintages of Montebello. Like, the 11 would be a vintage that, you know, someone should go after if that's what they're looking for. Speaking about vinifying not much, how are you vinifying? So, with, with the Chenin Blanc, I destem it and then basket press it. So, kind of, you know, the traditional way that white wine was made you know so de-stem it and i don't do any kind of extended skin contact but just get it off the stems break the skins and then press it and i let it sit in a tank like a tiny little tanks for a day uh like the plexiglass ones oh uh, no i've used stainless steel so oh, okay, a little okay. like there's the you know the square stainless steel tank so i just let it sit in there a day and then i hook it up to a hose and lift up the tank with a forklift and then i just you know rack down to barrel so you know it's not i don't put any enzymes to settle you know or put any bentonite just kind of let it settle naturally for a day and then i fermented and used barrels from three to five year old white burgundy barrels that I luckily get a buy from a friend and uh, I don't stir. I don't do any stirring. And I, I think if you want to make white wines that are unfined and unfiltered, you need to over vintage them. So, you know, if you want to have wines that stabilize naturally, you need to over vintage. It just takes time. And, you know, if you try to bottle wine after nine months, that's great. But I think that's when you need to, if you just throw it in a bottle, see protein haze and, you know, some kind of other tartrate issues so we do over vintage so the wines are 15 16 months in barrel for the shenans no racking so they're aged on their kind of fine leaves for that time and then they're they rack the day of bottling and then put the bottle and then with the reds uh all the wines that i'm actually have bottled uh they've been all whole cluster so and why'd you make that decision i i really like the structure that it gives the wines you know i think California, I, I think whole cluster works really well in California because we have an abundance of fruit. So adding some complexity with the wines. And I think the other really neat thing that it does is it it forces you to treat the wines more gently, you know, and less extraction. You know, when you have uber ripe grapes and uber ripe seeds and you destem everything, you can, you know, it's kind of that, it's that cycle where you're like, well, there's nothing bad. We might as well extract it as much as we can because there's nothing bad to extract. But when you're working with grapes that are, you know, I think picked on time 
and with stems that you know are you know they're they're made from you know a vegetative material you're, you're going to treat them more gently because you don't want to just kind of extract everything out of them there's a happy medium and i think using stems really uh helps you with that and i think aromatically and you know structurally and texturally i really like what whole cluster does and what about sulfur uh, sulfur. So all the wine, none of them see sulfur pre-fermentation. So they're sulfured for the first time when they finish malolactic. And some of the wines after malolactic, if I think, you know, they need, need a racking, they'll be racked. But, you know, most of the wines, like the 2010 Carignan wasn't racked until bottling. The Mataro was racked to put a blend together. And then 2012 Carignan was racked. The Syrahs were racked, but all after about nine months in barrel. And no yeast, you know, nothing's yeasted and nothing's corrected with acid. It's just, you know, native yeast and no corrections. And so you're using a basket press for most of it? Uh, Using a basket press for most of it, yeah. And the, you know, I was using the basket press over at Fela, Aaron Jordan's winery, because he's got a great new basket press. And uh, he's offered, you know, for me to continue to use it. I just haven't had the time to, like, haul the grapes over there. You know, been pretty busy. So in 2013, all the wines were pressed in just a regular bladder press. So you mentioned long aging possibility for the Grenache and more drinkable upfront for the Trousseau. But what about the other grape varieties? I and mean, what are you thinking for, for so apogees? I'd be lying if I said I I know, but I've liked the way everything that we bottled has been aging. You know, my guess is I think that they should all last about 10 years and be drinking really well. You know, I don't think. There are any kind of out of balance wines with be it fruit or tannin that really need to shed, you know. And sometimes when you have a big wine and a lot of fruit, when you lose the fruit, there's not much left that you like. I don't think these wines have that. The Shannon, you know, I, I tried to make a wine that I'm hoping will age for a long time. You know, we'll see. That's kind of why I destemmed it and got a little more phenolics and structure to it. You know, those wines are all in the high 12s, you know, and, you know, Picked more on acid than anything, and they go through full malolactic too. So, you know, but the finished pHs on those wines, you know, they're all like 12, 8 to 12, 9 alcohol and 3.4 finished pH, you know, after malolactic. So, I mean, they're still pretty healthy, healthy acidities. You're selling wines that are not Cabernet, Merlot, Sauvignon Blanc, Chardonnay from California. Of course, you had a long history selling Zinfandel, Petit Syrah, but what's the market like for Chenin Blanc from California? What's the market like for Trousseau? I don't know yet, to be honest. And I, I mean, I'm hoping that there's a market for it. You know, I'm not trying to make natural wines or, you know, I have no problem using sulfur. I, you know, think sulfur should be used. I've had plenty of wines. Uh, you know, I, I kind of think some of the natural wines that are being made now, it's it's really easy to get away with for the first three years because kind of everyone's starting with a clean cellar. But then after like three years, it's like, whoa, like if you're not really on top of it and you're using someone else's cellar, you can have some real problems. So, you know, I, I try to be really clean, you know, with the winemaking. That being said, you know, I don't use sulfur at the crusher or I don't use, you know, any enzymes or lysozyme, you know, nothing to kind of protect the wines besides sulfur. So, and I don't use a lot of it. I just think I, you use it when you know you need to use it. What about the name Sandlands? So it's a name that actually Abe Scherner used for one of his Scolium wines, and it was the first vineyard that I helped him get, you know, and it was kind of, he named it, and we always, like, really liked the name and, you know, thought that it kind of, you know, it's more than just, like, a vineyard, you know, and he he used it for a specific vineyard, but, you know, I think it kind of, it 
it makes you think of not Napa and Sonoma, and I love Napa and Sonoma wines, but it just makes you think of something else. Like, where is that? Like, it just kind of, it's kind of mysterious, which, you know, most of these regions that I'm working in, I mean, there are no classic producers. So if you think of Contra Costa, Lodi, and Amador County, there are no producers that kind of harken back to the 50s or 60s who, you know, they're, they don't have a Stony Hill, Jeremiah Commas. They, and, and it just amazes me. Why don't they? And maybe the answer is because, you know, you shouldn't make wine from out there. I don't believe that. But it's just the, the small winemaking culture doesn't exist out there. So I kind of wanted to kind of create wines that kind of, it meant something, you know, like when you think of Sandland, you think of, you know, and you go out and visit the vineyards, you're like, oh, right, this all makes sense, you know. Tegan Pascalacqua, thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much, Levy. Tegan Pascalacqua. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.